Uh, I told my wife as I was uh, coming here from Dallas yesterday that if I lived in this area, I would go to this church. I love this place. You made a good decision. I'm serious. Now, I've listened to some of the messages of this I Do series, and it's really good. This gym guy, not this gym guy, but the other gym guy, he can preach. And I learned a lot, and it was practical and helpful. Today, we're going to close off this series. And they've asked me to speak on protecting your marriage, but I want to say something right up front to those of you who aren't married. You know what? This is also about preparing for marriage. Because we do need to protect our marriage, but we also need to prepare. Sometimes we bring too much baggage into marriages, and that's why some of the people around us are all messed up in their marriages. So as we talk about protecting your marriage, I, I need to be honest with you, honest confessions. Kathy and I have been married for 38 years. I know I only look 38 years old, but 38 <laughs> years. And we have a high-maintenance marriage. We had a high-maintenance marriage on the first day, and we still have a high-maintenance marriage. Now, we write marriage books together, and sometimes we speak together on marriage, but we still have a high-maintenance marriage. Uh, guy from college, came from an alcoholic home, was a brand-new Christian, met a girl who came from a crazy home, and she was a brand-new Christian, and we met in college and married one week after. Uh, we graduated, and we went on to graduate school and came back to a church where I was the youth pastor, and uh, it was a big call. It was not that big of a church, and there were four kids in the, in the youth group, and I could handle that. <laughs> about a month later, there were almost 100, and then about six months later, there were 400, and it just kept growing. It became one of the largest youth groups in America, larger than the church. And after a couple of years, where Kathy and I would go to the salt and pepper restaurant in Orange, California, I do not suggest that restaurant, it's a dive, but... We were, what I was thinking, having a date after the youth group meeting, and she was thinking it was a review time to talk about the youth group, because that's what I was doing, and that's what I always did. And her lip began to quiver. Any of you have spouses whose lips quiver? That's a problem. Because, and now I have three daughters, and their lips quiver too. It's a hereditary thing, I think. But her lips started to quiver, and she said, Jim, I don't think we should have kids. Kathy, what do you mean? On our first date, we talked about this. Kathy has a background. She teaches kids who have learning disabilities. She's a kid magnet. She was my best volunteer. What do you mean you don't want kids? On that first date, we talked about it. I wanted her to have my kids on the first date, frankly, and she had no interest in, in that. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, Jim, you're always so busy, and you're always so distracted, and you're always so involved with this church, and all these kids, and they love you, and I love you, but I don't know if you'd be there for our kids. And it was like socking me in the gut. I had to admit something to her that I'm not proud of. I had to say to Kathy, Kathy, I'm having an affair. Now, the affair was not with a woman. And I know I live in Southern California, but it wasn't a man either, okay? <laughs> my affair was with my job, my mistress. My low self-esteem needs were being met by a church that loved me. I mean, for some who are in, in ministry here, this may be a greater miracle than Jesus walking on water, but they doubled my salary in one year, and it was still a lousy salary. And there at the salt and pepper restaurant, we decided to protect our marriage, and we made three decisions. We wrote it on a napkin. One, that we would have a non-negotiable date night. We were, I thought, dating, and Kathy didn't think it was dating because our dates really didn't court each other. Our dates sort of talked about whatever was going on in life. And we were distracted, and I was distracted. So we decided to do a non-negotiable date night. Secondly, we decided to only be out three nights a week. The average person who's in ministry in a church is oftentimes out more times, and we couldn't handle that in our marriage. I needed to protect our marriage. Thirdly, we decided that Kathy would have veto power over my schedule. Since I was running with a runaway schedule and loved every minute of it, by the way, and although my dad was 
addicted to alcohol. I was addicted to work and loved it. We decided that Kathy would have veto power over my schedule. And it wasn't that I turned her into a bad guy. What I turned her into was somebody who we could share this together. And so instead of arguing about our schedule, we would grieve our schedule at times. Oh, there were times where we would grieve it because we both made a poor decision. But the fact of the matter is, is that that was a part of the protection of our marriage. We had to learn something the hard way in some ways. That there's pain in life. What I learned in terms of protecting my marriage was that there's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And the pain of discipline, which for a lot of you, and even those of you who aren't married yet, there's a pain, but it's the pain of discipline. It's the pain of intentionality. It's the pain of doing it right. It's the pain of protecting instead of just letting it go because a lot of us have what I oftentimes call, well, confused priorities, attractive distractions. And yet for most of us, in fact, I would say probably 90% of us, when we got married before a pastor or a priest, most likely they shared this scripture that's up on the screen. Jesus said it. At the beginning, he said, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. But then it goes to what probably the pastor or the priest shared. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. How do you protect a marriage? Well, in many ways, probably at your wedding where you said, I do, or if you're not married, you will one day most likely say, I do. You probably said that. It's a promise. It's a vow, if you would. And today, as we look at this scripture, I want to come up with three issues that I think help us protect our marriage. And actually, I've listened to the messages, most of the messages that's, that you've heard. And they're amazing. And I think this closes it off pretty well. First of all, we need commitment. It's interesting that in that particular scripture, it says a man will leave his father and mother. A woman will leave her father and mother. And when you leave, you're committing to somebody else. Are you leaving your father and mother and not committing to having a relationship with mom and dad? No, that's not the case. But you're committing. It's a commitment. And what's so interesting is when we look at our priorities, and sometimes we have confused priorities. For me, during that time that I talked about, what was happening was, I, I'm good at scheduling. I was scheduling what I thought was my priorities, but the fact is, is, don't prioritize what's on your schedule, but schedule what is your top priority, and many times marriage misses out on that. Confused priorities, attractive distractions. There's probably not one person in this room that wouldn't agree with this. Even if you're new to the church or you're new to faith, probably you would say, well, it would be a relationship with God, a relationship with my marriage, if you're married, a relationship with the children, and a relationship with my vocation, and then on. But the fact is, is we all have confused priorities. Oh, boy, have we messed it up at times. My vocation is doing God's stuff, and so I get my vocation confused with my relationship with God and lose out sometimes on God. There are many times in my marriage that we've had what we call a child-focused marriage. So our kids are a lot needier than both of us, so we end up spending our energy and our time, and then I fall into bed exhausted with really not much of a relationship with Kathy or the relationship with Kathy has been stale or it's been more like a business relationship because we put our energy into our work, we put our energy into our, our, our kids. I mean, putting energy into work and kids is not a bad thing. And obviously, some of you have kids who are like 10 and under and it's not like you can say, okay, um, we're gonna go up to Wisconsin and we're gonna you know, take a little vacation here and you guys take care of yourself. Little babies, change your own diaper and I hope you can get some food someplace. We're gonna go have a great time. You don't do that. 
But for many kids, they feel insecure because they know you're putting all of your energy into your, to them and actually not putting much energy into your marriage. Interesting. So confused priorities, attractive distractions. And what happens is with confused priorities and attractive distractions, we, we, we actually have blocks to the commitment. Now, I think one of the biggest blocks to commitment is actually something I spoke on here in, in August. One of the biggest blocks is what I call overcommitment underconnected. There's a scripture in the message version of the Bible. It's not going to be up there, but it's Eugene Peterson who paraphrased this scripture, and he said, talking about people like you and me, they were so involved in their God projects that they stumbled into God and missed him and went sprawling. Sometimes we have to say no to good things in order to say yes to the most important things. And way too many times in marriage, we say yes to everything else and not sometimes to our marriage. Crisis mode living is what happens. So when families are in crisis mode living, they're going from meeting to meeting to carpool to laundry or whatever it is, and they just fall in bed exhausted and they don't have time for each other. I was reading in a New York Times, of all things, I was in the Starbucks and it was free. Some guy had put it down, so I grabbed it real quick. Said lonely husbands, lonely wives. Talked about a guy who, actually a pretty neat guy, uh, involved in a church in New York City, uh, taught a Bible study fellowship on Tuesday nights, worked in Wall Street, never missed his son's soccer game, never missed his daughter's dance recitals. I mean, this is a dad of the year. Mom, who was involved in the worship team at her church called Redeemer Press there, a man named Tim Keller, who's an amazing pastor. She's on the worship team. She volunteers at the school every week totally involved with her kids, works part-time. But at the very end of the article, it said they fall into bed six inches apart every night too late, they don't get enough sleep, and they're miles apart relationally. See, Sometimes we need to protect our marriage by making a commitment to spending time with each other because we live in crisis mode. And I want to tell you, if your marriage or your family is in crisis mode, then it's not going to do well with your kids. It's not going to do well with your marriage. So my kids went to a school called Capistrano Valley Christian School. They went through eighth grade there. And uh, great school, horrible parking, just horrible parking. And uh, Kathy would pick them up, and I would drive them, and I'd let them go. And if I could turn a quick left, I'd be fine. But otherwise, I had to kind of go around the parking lot and dodge kids and balls and mothers and all kinds of things. And so my goal was always to drop the kids off, turn a quick left, get out of the parking lot, go to work. So this particular day, I turned a quick left, I was driving the Loser Cruiser, which is a green van that had three weeks worth of McDonald's French fries on it. Kids, are you hungry? You know, I think we've got some fries just under that, that, that seat right there. So I turn into a Cadillac Escalade, brand new, no license plate. These people were proud of that Cadillac Escalade, and they were probably not proud of the Loser Cruiser that had just turned into it. And I thought I hit the car, but then I realized I was about that far off. You ever done that? Where you slam on the brakes, you think you hit something, and I'm looking down going, happy day. I look up, and the lady in the passenger seat is right here, and she's not saying happy day. <laughs> I know it's a Christian school parking lot. She is not singing praise God from whom all blessings flow. She thinks I hit her car. And so she has a look of pure hate. Her husband is going crazy. And all of a sudden, I look at this guy. I think he's going to get out of the car, and I think he's going to beat me up in the Christian school parking lot. And he's bigger than me. And at the very moment, I recognize him. I have a hat on. They don't recognize the bald head. But during a season in our church, we were without a pastor, and I was preaching a lot, and I knew them. They, these, you know, you people are so strange. You sit in the same seats. I mean, these people sat over here. Do you sit in the same, do you usually sit in the same seats, you? Yeah, there you are, okay? You're the 
third row, left side people. And if somebody sits there, you're probably angry at them, right? You need to like yeah, ask for forgiveness. So these people sit over here, kind of the nerd section, you know who you are. And, and I recognized them and I kind of smiled thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't hit their car. Now I went, you know, I, I missed your car, but they didn't hear me. They could just see me doing this. And they're thinking there's a scrape about that long in your new Escalade. All of a sudden, this guy gets angry, and he lifts his hand toward me, and he gives me the international sign of displeasure. <laughs> For those of you who are slow, that means he flipped me off in the Christian school parking lot. At the very moment he flipped me off, he recognized me, and he went from here to like, hey, Pastor Jim. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. We're doing this through windows. They can't hear. And he goes, no problem. Now, I know none of your pastors would do this, but in the third service at our church, I said to them, you know, they, usually they're praying and they're doing important things. I said, you know, I've got an important meeting I need to go to. So I walked down off the stairs. I went over to these people and I just stood there and I said, I'm so sorry for cutting you off. And he said, I'm sorry for. But then he, he you know, it was so quick of the wrist, maybe I didn't see it. This is what your pastors would never do. So I just said, for flipping me off. And he goes, yeah, ah, shucks. Didn't know you saw it. Then he looks at me and he said, well, actually, it was her fault. And he points to his wife. <laughs> she was grumpy. I'm thinking, wait, you flipped off your pastor and she's grumpy? So he said, you know, what happened, Jim, is we were kind of in crisis. He uses the same term because I'd spoken on it. You're, we were in crisis mode. We were down to one car. Our kids were grumpy. She was grumpy. Well, I guess I was a little grumpy if I did that to you. And I said, hey, no problem. It happens to me all the time. <laughs> but the story is... Actually, we do that to our spouses. Now, I hope you don't actually do it. Hi, honey. Good, nice to see you. You know, there you go. Um, goodbye. You know, whatever. You'd like to at times, but you don't, I hope. But in crisis mode, we do silly things because we don't have margin. And we're really not protecting our marriage. In fact, in a book I wrote called Confident Parenting, I quote a study out of Harvard that says, 12 less free hours for this generation than the previous generation. That's not good. So we protect our marriage by, by putting some margin into our life. It's this breathless pace in which we love our lives that is sometimes killing us. And if we're going to protect our marriage, let me say it this way. We have to be ruthlessly honest about our own brokenness. What we want to do at series like this, and as I was listening to the I Do series, I was thinking, boy, Kathy needs to hear this. Well, no, she doesn't. I need to hear it. And so when I'm pointing at Kathy, three fingers are pointing back at me. And so I need to deal with my own brokenness. If you come to this church and you come with abuse or you come with past uh, sinful you know, relationships or whatever it is, or if you're preparing for a marriage and you're not really doing it right, let me say this to you, even if you're young. God is here to forgive you, but you're still going to have to deal with your brokenness as you come into a relationship. Way too many relationships come together in brokenness, and then that means they carry baggage into it. So be ruthlessly honest about your own brokenness. Focus on your stuff, not his stuff. Focus on your stuff, not her stuff. Some of you are going right now, man, I wish my spouse was here or my spouse needs to hear this. I hope they're listening. I'm not talking to your spouse, I'm talking to you. Because even one person can make a difference in a marriage. See? I have a friend named Henry Cloud who says, if the tooth is infected, pull it. So in other words, if something is infected in your marriage, if something, by the way, if you're not married, if something is infected that's gonna hurt you in relationship, pull it. Don't pull the marriage. And also through that, you're going to have to seek forgiveness and give forgiveness. How arrogant of us to pray to God to forgive us of our sins, and then we won't forgive our spouse. And yet in this room, there would be a lot of people with low-level anger or bitterness, 
toward our spouse because we harbor something. And so we need to offer forgiveness, but we also need to receive forgiveness. A lot of us feel shame. Sometimes it's hard for me to receive Kathy's forgiveness when I know that I've been a real ding-dong. I guess I can't say the word ding-dong because I think Hostess is going broke. I heard that <laughs> on Friday. A new generation who will never hear of a ding-dong. How sad, but there you go. And for Kathy and I, if we're going to protect our marriage, we need to have, be on the same blueprint. For us, it's an interesting scripture. It's found in Ephesians 5, 21. Now, some of you who know a lot about scripture, when you think about Ephesians 5, it's about submission. And you go, oh my gosh, is this guy going to talk about submission? Actually, submission is not a bad thing. It means to serve one another. But actually, this scripture, which says submit to one another out of mutual reverence for Christ, is the thing for Kathy and me. It's called mutual submission. You know, I thought and had the audacity to think that when I got married 38 years ago, that this was going to be a 50-50 deal. I don't think Kathy and I have ever had a 50-50 deal. When Kathy, after our third child was born, had a hysterectomy and her hormones went kind of crazy and she was acting like a woman from Mars, um, it was 80-20, me. When I had cancer a few years ago, Kathy carried the marriage and the family 80-20 at least. And so what it is, is it's a mutual submission. How can I serve you? Think of a couple in their 80s named Helen and Lee, and I love them because they still hold hands. I think it's the cutest thing in the entire world that they hold hands. And they kind of walk, you know, like this, and they hold hands. It's amazing. And they were at a conference. Homeward, the organization I work with, does weekend marriage conferences. And they were at this conference, and I said, what's the secret to your marital intimacy? I'd written a book called Creating an Intimate Marriage. It's a strategy on marriage. And... I was so enamored with the fact that they had intimacy. Now, when I say the word intimacy, you men are thinking about sex, and the women are thinking about emotional connection. The women are right on this, although, you know, there is a part to physical intimacy that's kind of cool, too. But they said, well, the, the secret, Helen was talking, she said, was the very first day when we got married, what did I say to you, Lee? And he kind of smiled and said, you tell Jim. And she said, I said, I'm going to outlove you every day of our marriage. And he said, and what did I say, this little old man? She said, well, you said. And he said, I'm going to outlove you every day. And you know what? The secret was is they learned to serve each other. They put some of their selfishness aside, and they became servant lovers. I walked away from that saying, I want to be a servant lover for Kathy. And there's times in my life where I'm a selfish lover. And I wouldn't see myself as selfish, but I see myself as a person who sometimes does that, where I put my own needs before Kathy. And yet the word doulos, which is Greek, for servant is really a word slave, and I am Kathy's slave because I said I do. See, and so I need to be on the same page. Maybe you do too. How do you protect your marriage? Well, you also protect your marriage through communication. In fact, the scripture says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Well, the united part is that you're willing to communicate. If you're not communicating, you're not united. Now, 86% of marriages that derail, derail because of poor communications. That's what the authorities say. And so for some of us, the way we protect our marriage, and some of us are good communicators, most of us aren't, frankly, is we need to be able to communicate. And what I want to do is very quickly introduce you to something that has been radically different in my life. If you come to my office in San Juan Capistrano, where my office is, you would see by my phone three little initials, ah. What I'm saying is you can replenish your relationship through awe in communication. Awe stands for affection, warmth, and encouragement. It's that simple. Let me say it this way, friends, and then I'll get into awe. Nagging doesn't work. Has it worked for you? 
uh, criticism, even if it's justified. But if it's constant criticism, if it's flooding, if it's constantly you know, being that nag, it doesn't work. Now, let me go farther because your spouse may not say it to you in this way. If you're negative Nancy or you're negative Ned and you're always being negative to your spouse, your spouse is running from you. They're running to the computer. Hopefully it's not horrible stuff that they're running to, but they're running to the computer. They're running to work. They're running to a newspaper. They're running to sports. They're running to shopping. They're running to Bible study sometimes. But it's fascinating because the scripture says in Proverbs 17, 32, it says, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Now, I'm not talking about clinical depression and some of the things that you may be facing. But what I am saying is, is if we work on our own stuff, and if we get as emotionally and spiritually together as we possibly can, we're going to bring that to, to a healthier place in our marriage. I was talking, I do, I'm writing a book right now on premarital counseling. And I was talking with a couple, I'm doing a lot of premarital counseling, and I, and I, I looked at the, the woman, and I said, you know what you want to do? Is not keep working on him. <laughs> Um, you guys will have a great marriage, but work on your own stuff. Come to this marriage emotionally and spiritually strong. And you know what? She didn't have a cheerful heart. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about outgoing or somebody who can tell jokes. I'm talking about somebody who, who gets their heart closer and more pure. And, and in marriages, when we communicate with awe, which I'm going to introduce, it, it helps us. Awe, affection. UCLA study says it takes eight to ten meaningful touches a day for someone to thrive. It's I love you, it's, it's, it's a touch, it's, it's putting your arm around your spouse when they're in need, but also just putting your arm around your spouse. In fact, I would say, here's a, here's a little, I, I'm gonna give you homework. Does Jim ever give you homework? I'm gonna give you some homework. If you're married, I want you to, on a daily basis, give your spouse a 20 second kiss, okay? This is not sexual affection, this is just affection. Because what I found is that when I, as I left, I left Friday, I went to Dallas and spoke Friday and Saturday morning and came here. But as I left Friday morning, I gave Kathy this, well, I don't know if it was 15 seconds, that seems like a really long time, but you know, I gave her this extra long kiss. In fact, my daughter, Christy, who has just gotten engaged, said, mom and dad, get a room. I said, no, I gotta get to the airport, but I'd like to get a room. <laughs> and I gave her this, this kiss, and it was, Kathy, I kiss you like I kiss no one else. I'm not gonna kiss my grandma like that. But in that, it says, sure, we have tension and we've had bitterness and we've had moments within our 38 years, but you and I are sealing it with affection. And it's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. It's fascinating that there, and this is a, a, a very important study, but there is always very little healthy physical intimacy in a marriage if there's not emotional intimacy. And emotional intimacy comes from affection. It also comes from warmth. You say warmth. What, what, what does that mean? Well, when we walked in here today, we, somebody had set the thermostat to, to a great level, to a, to a right level. Do you ever think about setting the thermostat in your home? Because a lot of times we react to what's going on. We're in crisis mode, so we just keep reacting. That's not a, a good place to grow in a cup, as a couple with our communication. Now, some of you have little kids, and if your kids have a fever, you stick a thermometer in some hole in their body, I don't know which one, and it reacts to the temperature. See what I'm saying? And what we tend to do is we tend to go with the thermometer instead of the thermostat. Set the tone. My mom was like this. My mom, we called her the party time grandma. You know, her, 
her husband, my dad, was an alcoholic. Four boys, you know, it was crazy in the house. But somehow she had the ability to put some of that aside, not repress it, but, some, put, but put it aside at times and create a warmth. When, you know, the way she greeted me, the way she greeted my dad. You know, friends would come over to my house and knock on the door. Hey, is Jim here? No, he's playing basketball down at the gym. Well, can we just come in and hang out with you, Mrs. Burns? I mean, how cool. But the point I'm saying is, communication isn't just about conflict resolution and all that. Man, I write about that. I talk about that. But it's setting a tone and an atmosphere. And if you're setting a tone that doesn't have warmth, then again, your spouse is going to run from you. So we set this tone of warmth. And you say, boy, does my spouse need to hear that. No, you need to hear it. Because just one person can make that difference. And what I'm saying to some of you who are single, if you set a tone of healthy affection, not inappropriate affection, if you set a tone of warmth, man, you're a long ways. But also awe, encouragement. Mark Twain said, I can live two months on one good compliment. I crave encouragement from Kathy. I mean, I like encouragement from you, but I crave encouragement from Kathy. So when she says, my daughter has uh, just gotten engaged, and, and, and she said, you know what? It's going to be so special for her to have you walk her down the aisle because you guys have such a relationship. She said, I never had that relationship with my dad. You're a good dad. I start bawling like a baby. Why? And, and if somebody else said that, I'd go, okay, that's nice. But when Kathy says it, she reaches into my heart and takes part of my heart and it's placed in her heart. Why? Because encouragement is that important and that special. But when you're in a relationship, you're bumping into each other and, you know, women, you know this guy, he burps and scratches and does all this weird stuff. So how are you going to encourage him? You know what? It takes discipline sometimes. But awe can change the way you communicate. Now also... How do you protect your marriage? Maybe the most difficult, but perhaps the most important, is we set healthy boundaries. In fact, we set boundaries that bring honor to our spouse, oftentimes through purity and fidelity. Man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife as they communicate, and the two will become one flesh. Wow, that's our goal. But then it says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Is God a part of the marriage? Is God a part of the protection process? Because if God is a part of the protection process, then we want to do, again, what my friends Helen and Lee did. Outdo one another in showing honor. In fact, the scripture says in Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Brotherly there doesn't mean just male love. It means, you know, in, in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So if we can honor each other by setting boundaries through purity and fidelity, let me say it this way, the safest road to emotional, physical, and spiritual intimacy is always through purity and always through fidelity. It's how you protect your marriage. So let me meddle in your life for a minute. If you're a person in marriage, and most marriages have had this somewhere along the line, and you have what we would call an emotional affair, you're not going to be protecting your marriage. And, and how you can tell if you have an emotional affair is if you're dressing for somebody at work, not for your spouse. You're thinking, boy, I hope he likes this, or I hope she likes that. Or if you're having a time where you're sharing secrets with someone of the opposite sex that you haven't shared with your spouse, you're moving in that direction. If you fantasize, you're moving in that direction. And when we have emotional affairs, we're letting our mind go that way. It's, it's humanly possible to do that at any time for any person, so it means it's the pain of discipline rather than the pain of regret. So for me, I mean, I have no lunches with 
people of the opposite sex. That doesn't mean that I don't have friends and I don't, you know, there are beautiful people who are, who are women who, you know, I can, you know, have a conversation with, but for some reason we've chosen to not have my, I set my boundary, my line with, with no lunches. Not because at the lunch I'm going to, you know, fall into her arms, but because I've set those boundaries. So if you see me having lunch with a woman, then you know I've crossed my boundary for me. It means that there's some travel in my life. I just, we just ask at my office that a woman doesn't pick me up. Again, not because you know, I'm going to be in her arms as we're you know, driving down the road, but because it's crossing a boundary that I have said to Kathy, this is the boundary we're going to, to go by. And, and, and continue to put up some boundaries, not because we're afraid of beautiful people, but because we want to make our marriage tight and we want to make our marriage special. So we've got to meddle a little bit more. Let me meddle with a word. The word is called pornography. I was with a friend of mine who was the, my youth, junior high youth pastor years ago. Now he's the main Superior Court judge in Orange County, California, where I live. And uh, we were having a dinner with him and his wife and a friend of our mutual friend who's a family law attorney who, who does divorce proceedings. And they were having a discussion about pornography. And they said, you know, it's fascinating, but 10 years ago, my friend who is the attorney said to the judge, I never had anybody come in and talk about pornography. I'm sure you know, pornography was, was there, obviously. But he said, today it's about 40% of the marriages that are ending in divorce in my practice. The word pornography is somewhere in there. It's usually not the main reason they got a divorce, but it probably could have been a major issue. In fact, I work with kids and I'm concerned about kids and that's why I talk to you about marriage. And I would say that if we're not careful, it's pornography that's gonna take this generation down. Today, there is no one who is innocent. In fact, the first time a kid will see pornography is age 11. How's that getting started for a marriage? The greatest new users of pornography are boys ages 12 to 17. How's that working for a marriage? That's not okay. Right behind them would be girls. And the interesting thing is, is guys are very visual and girls come in on the emotional side and sometimes their problem with pornography is even stronger because the emotional connection, they go into a chat room and have these kind of conversations. Now, there's not as many of them, but here's what takes place. And, and if this is the case within your marriage or you sense that it is time to get help, I'm not shouting or telling you you're horrible. I'm saying you're kind of normal, but let's get some help. So a person views pornography. It's a different type of addiction because as soon as you view pornography, then your brain takes a picture of it and says, I like that. And you go from the frontal cortex of your brain to the stimulation part of your brain and you become addicted. I mean, you can smoke one cigarette and you will not be addicted to nicotine, although it's a pretty strong addiction, right? But it's a, it's a physical addiction. This is more of a mental addiction. So you view pornography. This is how it escalates. Then you move to addiction. And then the word escalates. It escalates. At first, you felt shame and it didn't really, you know, you felt sadness and you were mad at yourself, but you keep coming back. So now it's escalating. And then you become desensitized. So what was gross three weeks ago or three months ago isn't gross anymore. You're not protecting your marriage. And those of you who are preparing for marriage or one day will be marriage, now you're in trouble because what happens is, is in the last part, you begin to act out in your mind what you've been seeing in pornography and you begin to treat the opposite sex, both men and women, as a sex object. And all of a sudden, you're not protecting the marriage. You're not protecting the incredible physical intimacy that takes place. That's your case, or the case if you're you know, flirting with something else. Could be an emotional affair. There is a road to safety. It's purity and fidelity, but it's also, interestingly enough, through accountability, being authentic and accountable relationship. Every Tuesday morning, I meet at the beach, actually. There's a 
restaurant on the sand in Newport Beach, California, and I'm with four guys who are older than me and wiser than me. So there's five of us who have breakfast, and we, we hold each other accountable. And we read the scripture together, and we laugh, and we argue politics and talk about sports, and we pray, but we talk about our own personal lives. And I'm a better husband and father because I hang out with those guys every Tuesday. And in fact, every six weeks, the president of a university down there, he's my best friend, his name is John Wallace, John and I get together, and we, we ask the hard questions. Have you done anything inappropriate even in your mind with a woman? Now, we've been doing this for 20 years. We didn't start having this conversation. How are you handling your finances? Are you being faithful to your Bible reading? Are you being faithful to your relationship with Kathy? Are you being faithful to what your goals are with your kids? Have you lied in any of the answers? And I find that, again, I'm by no means perfect, but by holding myself accountable, by being in an accountable relationship with somebody else, that's a big deal. When Kathy and I were in a couples group, and I noticed that you have couples community groups that they're talking about. When we were in a couples group for seven years, that helped our marriage big time. And we came into it not thinking we had stuff with our marriage. Then we'd see another couple, and they say they're doing this on a date, or somebody else is doing that. And, and we gravitated to that. We also saw pain and sorrow in that group. So we were not meant to do it alone. We were meant to do this in community. Accountability, integrity. At Homeward, where I work, there's a, uh, there's a phrase. We're trying to look for a million kids to live by this phrase. In honor of God, my family... And my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. It's called the Purity Code. We've got some books back there that do that for kids. But what I'm challenging you to do is to live by the Purity Code if you're married. In honor of God, my family, and my spouse, I commit to sexual purity. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret, you want to protect your marriage. You've had great, great, great teaching. But in reality, you can throw away all that great teaching if you're not protecting your marriage. One of the most important boundaries and commitments that we can ever think about is the boundary and the commitment of spiritual intimacy. It's probably really in many ways the least developed area of marital intimacy. And you know, for Kathy and I, I mean, we've been married 38 years, I can disciple kids, but it's harder in spiritual intimacy with us. Two challenges to you. Number one, Dr. David Stoop, who's one of the great marriage leaders of our day, he's a mentor in my life and a great friend, he and Jan. They're in their 70s now. I heard him speak one time where I was also speaking at the event, but Kathy and I were listening to him, and he said this. He said, one out of two marriages end in divorce. But there is a better chance if you pray. If you pray together daily, and he quotes a study out of Cornell, there is a 1,100 chance out of one. Incredible. So I challenge some of you to pray. Can you pray sometimes when you're a little bit, you know, bitter and resentful to your spouse? Sure. Lord, I want to thank you right now for Kathy. But still, doing that, realizing that God is bigger than whatever problem you face. Have you brought into this issue the spiritual intimacy? The other issue for us is that we want to be, secondly, intentional about refreshing our marriage. So it means read a book a year on marriage. Most of us haven't done that. Uh, go to a marriage conference. Be a part of what's going on here in terms of the great stuff that's, you know, worship together. Pray together. Seek counseling if you need counseling. The Bible says where there is no counseling, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And so for Kathy and I, we decided that we would do this. And we decided we would spend some time together. And so we went and bought a big, thick book 
by Dennis Rainey, who I love and adore, and we started reading a devotional together every day. Pretty impressive for the four days that we did it. And then on the fifth day, we were a little mad at each other, so we didn't do it. And then the sixth day, the kids got in the way. And the seventh day, we lost the book. And we came back, and we did it two more days, and it was great. And then we just sort of missed it. And so we said, Dennis Rainey's book is not any good. So we went to Dr. Dobson's book, and we did the same thing. So we're talking to some mentors of ours, and we said, what, what's up? How do, you, how do you do this? He's a, definitely a, a Christian leader. Many of you would know this guy. And he said, well, we spend 20 minutes a week. And I went, how wimpy? I mean, I didn't say that to them. I'm thinking in my mind, how wimpy? And then I thought, well, I don't spend 20 minutes a week, but, you know, how, they, they shouldn't do that. I'm, like, judging them. We're driving back home, and Kathy goes, you know, that 20-minute thing, that sounds kind of neat. See, interesting, in the book called Five Sex Needs of Men and Women, my friends Gary and Barb Rosberg say that the fourth sex need of a woman is spiritual intimacy. It's not even on the top 50 of you men. But what she's saying is right. Kathy's saying, you know, maybe we could do that 20-minute thing. Well, I can do 20 minutes. And so we made a commitment to what we call closer time. And in that closer time, it's, it's, it, I have a book called Closer Now, but it doesn't have to be a book. It could be, what we do is we read scripture together, we have a focus time, and we basically pray for our family and our life. And it takes about 20 minutes, sometimes less, sometimes more. And there are times, sure, we go farther, but not all the time. We've read books together, and, and for us, we're not one who wants to do a big, long Bible study together. That's because we, we have part of that our life. That is happening other places. So we, we kind of just read together, and a lot of times Kathy reads it to me. And then we commit, and then we pray. It's 20 minutes. And what I want to challenge you in closing is, will you commit to spending 20 minutes each week developing spiritual intimacy in your marriage? You want to protect your marriage? Then do it. You say, but you know, we've got some stuff to work out. Work it out in and during spiritual intimacy. You don't have to be perfect. You can be mad at each other and still look at Scripture together. You can be mad at each other and still pray. And so what I'm asking you in terms of challenging is, are you willing to take the challenge that Kathy and I took? And we don't always do this every day. I wish we could, to pray together every day. I mean, we pray at like meals and stuff. But I mean, just where we take each other's hands and pray. And if you feel uncomfortable praying out loud, that's okay. Just hold each other's hands and you pray and he or she prays. And then are you willing to take 20 minutes? I'm telling you that this rocked my world. Well, the Bible says in... Matthew 19, 4 through 6, probably said at your wedding. We'll start at 5 where it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be committed, and be united to his wife, communicate, and the two will actually become one flesh. You become one flesh in marriage, but do you experience that one flesh stuff? You do that through commitment and communication so that they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has brought together, let no one separate. Lean into the spiritual intimacy part. In many ways, a simple message, but a most important message. As we go to the regional centers to pray, let's us pray together too. Almighty God, thank you for this series. We said I do. We said I will. And yet sometimes we do and we admit that we get confused priorities and attractive distractions. And for some of us, there's deep pain in our life. Lord, you didn't say it was going to be easy. But we said, I promise, I will, I do. Today, in many ways, we renew that at the end of this incredible series. 
And again, for some who are singles, practice this now, Lord, that they could do that and they wouldn't carry the baggage that some of the others have. God, be a part of our marriage. Renew us. We want that. Refresh our marriages. Draw us closer to you and closer to each other. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen.